0: So we are in 1 John chapter 1, and I'm going to back up a little bit, so to speak. I want to set the stage, if you would, for um, the the flow of this particular letter. And in 1 John, as you see, I've titled it, Love God, Love People. We're going to see even in this portion and throughout this letter, it's easy to love God, it's hard to love people. Can we agree? But get this, you can't love God unless you love people. Unless you have His love in you, teaching you how to love people, you can't say, "Well, I love God." It's people that are a problem. Well, maybe that one in the mirror, but in reality, we got to back away from that thing and that thought because I know what it's saying. I've said it, but I have to back away. Going okay, but wait a minute. Why do I tilt that way? So we're going to look at a few things now. First John chapter one, it begins with a, a declaration. Of who Jesus is. We see very clearly he de- declares that, that Jesus is God. He's creator. We're told that he came in, in body and life. John declares that Jesus was a physical, personal, viewable, vocal, touchable person. He was God in a human body. He didn't appear merely as a a ghost or a power or or some manifestation he was definitely among the disciples if you glance there in 1 John chapter 1 by way of review we see you hit the declaration that begins this letter that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life we broke that down last week you can catch that message verse 2 he goes on, and you know it's so important that we understand he continues in verse 2 by speaking of the human activity of Jesus as it reads, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You notice he's making this emphasis that there's this fellowship, this Greek word koinonia, that, that speaks of it's hard to translate into English because it has such richness and such depth and, and some such completeness. There's a part of the superficial side, um, the commonality we have with vocation or recreation or weather, conversation, that's surface. But this speaks of this, this depth and this fullness of life where you're sharing about the love. It, it really implies a shared life, shared resources, shared wisdom, shared knowledge, shared truth. And you're interacting together. And you see it um, literally in the New Testament. It speaks of who had all things in koinonia. That, that's where the word's translated actually in common. And those common things, there's this fellowship. You can have fellowship with the living God. Now, that was very foreign to Gentiles, whether the origin or their orientation was in Roman or Greek mythology. They didn't relate that you could have a personal relationship. You could know this God. They would form the God and then tell you about it, and then you could know about that God. It was foreign also to the, to the Jews to be able to speak as if you have this a, a You see what John said. Our hands touched him. Our eyes looked upon him. We looked more intently at him. You know, our ears heard the very words that come out of his physical body, his mouth. We had this engagement with him. And that's very foreign to the Jews. This is a very radical concept, quite honestly. This fellowship, this engagement. But it's so important. Because God has come to show you and I can have this personal relationship. It's very important because these first three verses are very clear about the relationship that is made available to us. It's really essential that we see this is, you know, some of you have had maybe this conversation or maybe a declaration about you like I had. Somebody said to me after I was born again and started going to church, oh, Davis got religion. He cleaned up his act. As if I traded my Saturday night stupidity for a Sunday morning discipline and I just changed my life. I got religion. Because they only perceived the outward. You know, this relationship we have, it's it's not a new code of ethics. It is not a different uh, morality manual. Nor is it to be seen as a revised list of religious duties. It's a new way of life because it's a new life, a new beginning. The Bible speaks specifically that when we respond to God's offer of grace, when we respond to the truth he brings to us, when we receive that, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're told that we are born again, born of the Spirit, regenerate, new within. And so it's not about retraining the old person, it's about learning to live this new way of life because it's new life born again, we begin again. We learn to love. We learn to believe new. We learn to think anew. We learn to make new choices because we're born again. Not so you can be. Do you see the distinction? It's because we're new. And I want to go to a passage that I I visit often, and I believe for one reason it capsulizes our conduct and our instruction so well. It's in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. And we're gonna look at one, two, and three, just briefly to set the stage for the next portion of 1 John. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse one, we have this exhortation. It's it's in light of Romans one through 11. Because of what you've learned and all that doctrinal richness and all that beautiful truth that's brought forth Now here's an application for it, a a manner by which how we should live. And it says that I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So this is written to, to believers, to born again. Those of you who are in the family, he speaks. By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, it says, your reasonable service. Let's think about that. In light of who God is and how you now have believed in him by his mercies, in other words, his mercy that's poured out on you is actually experienced and compels you to live within that awareness of his undeserved kindness, of his mercy, of his favor. How should I live? Well, it just makes sense that you'd present your body a living sacrifice, not a dead offering, but a living sacrifice because of what he's done a reasonable and proper expression of gratitude would be to offer your body to him. It's just a reasonable, as one translation puts it, a reasonable act of worship. It's a means by saying, thank you, I will live for you because of what you've done for me. So he's saying, you know, I'm just encouraging you strongly in light of what he's done for you, that it's just as reasonable to present your body to him. Well, how do you do that? What does it mean to present to my body to him? Well, it gives us one application in the next verse. And do not be conformed to this world. It speaks of don't be shaped by the pressure and the influence like hands can mold clay and the pressures of this life can mold you. He said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, the word we, we, we you know, metamorphosis, be changed from one to another, Literally, you can study on your own, caterpillar to butterfly. Your life expression is going to be different, be changed, be you know, transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. By changing the way you think because you are born again, you will think differently. You will live differently. And by changing, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you prove, you put to the test, you make known what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Have you ever had that thought go through your mind when you're stirred by his presence and aware of his calling and just encouraging you? God, what is your will for my life? You ever said that? I think most most people have, at least some way. Like, God, what's your will? It's right here. That you're not shaped and influenced by the things of this life exclusively, but rather you're transformed, you're changed by embracing his truth, knowing him, and and, and then you're putting to the test. And and that's not in a negative sense, that's just verifying and validating that his word is true. And then then you prove his acceptable, his his total will for your life. His will is that you would walk in obedience for your benefit. We don't walk in, in obedience because he's a tyrant, We walk in obedience because he's beautiful and he knows what's best for us. So then we'd walk in obedience because he knows what's best. It's his will. We would walk in awareness of his love and know him in a deeper way. We're not renewed in new rules. We're made new, born again, and we now learn the ways of our true father. Let's carry it though today as well a little further into verse 3. Verse 3. The Apostle Paul is the instrument God poured this truth through, like we're reading where John is the instrument in 1 John. The Word of God says in verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one, a measure of faith. And you're going to see, I believe, how this connects with where we're going in First John. But this speaks of learning to be honest with yourself and truthful before God. Notice we can see three things within this verse. I say through the grace, through the unmerited favor, you you didn't just wake up one day and figure you needed to get right with God. That may have happened. You may have concluded logically that I need to get right with God. But it was actually his calling to you that generated a longing for him. You actually responded, although you didn't see that process taking place before your logic. You were saved by grace through faith, according to Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. It's his unmerited favor, undeserved kindness that draws us closer and closer if we'll, we'll take hold of it. It's important because it helps us understand his kindness. The next thing you notice in this verse is it says to think soberly, which means of right function, uninhibited or unhindered, if you would. I like to think of it this way: Don't be drunk on yourself. Be honest. It's the biggest struggle Christians face, quite honestly, is being honest with themselves. They don't want people to see them this way, I get it. They don't want people to know about this. But set that aside. That's, that's public, that's beyond. What's internal is what you want to learn to be honest about. Be sober, be sober-minded before God, to be able to, to realize, man, I need to, I, this is not true. This is the things I need to work on. I need to be aware See, I think we live in a culture that is, it promotes self-intoxication. People are literally inebriated by their ego and their own conversation to where they, they, they just don't even see truth. They, they really they can't because they, they're so concerned about what I feel. You know a common thing today that's is, is just the peak? I say this word a lot. I'm trying to stop, but I'll just start next week. It's the peak of stupidity. Well, this is my truth. Have you heard that one? This is my truth. This is what I hold. I am so saddened that our school systems promote that and indoctrinate our children with this silliness. Oh, this is my uh, time out. You don't have any truth, God has truth. You can align yourself with the truth, but you can't modify the truth and call something from variation or deviation of it. This is my truth. This is how I relate. Are you kidding me? I believe a window is the door because that's the way I feel it is. It's like we are, we are deprived. We are, we are robbed of street smarts, common sense, obvious fact, And it's promoted as some higher learning, some deeper thinking, some great expression of individuality. It's contrary to truth. The truth is the truth. It's best to make the truth your truth and call it the truth with you in line with the truth. Does that make sense? Now, I could get probably kicked off social media right after this gets posted, who knows? Because when you, when you, that seems so so it dis, uh, it's, it's it's so callous. It's so such disregard for human feeling. No, it's actually a greater concern for human expression. Because I'd rather speak truth than patronize and, and coddle somebody into deep depression. I would rather just speak truth and come alongside and be kind, but direct. Oh, can you be that way, kind and direct? I think you can. It's possible. Think soberly. The third thing, and I belabored that a bit, but the third one is so important. Learn to live by faith. You see, in verse three, we have grace. We have this need for honesty and then to to, to walk in a measure of faith. Learning to live by faith. You know, the greatest step by faith is one step. We think of these giant leaps for mankind. We think of like someone, a family, a person, or couple or whatever that that leaves their familiar culture and goes into a foreign land and there's this huge leap of faith to to go serve in the mission field. I don't think that's true. This is what I think happens. They take a step of faith and they follow with the step of faith. And we overlook all the steps that brought the faith to where they took this, what seems to be a leap. Because here's the thing, the step of faith is the same for all of us. Learning how to walk in faith in all areas, whether it's sexuality, whether it's knowledge, whether it's temptation, whether it's you just fill in the blanks of the life of human experience. We're called to walk in faith, to learn to live by faith. For God has given you a direct and perfect proportion, a measure of faith for everything that you deal with. How did you get saved? You don't have to answer in detail, I know. You brought nothing. All you did, all I did, was we responded individually, privately, and personally. Although there may have been a public expression, but there was a stirring of the heart. The God of love and compassion and kindness and creation stirred your heart to the knowledge of your sin, and He made it known to you. You knew about other people's sin, but now all of a sudden there's just this torquing and turning in your heart, like, man. And you brought no deal. You had nothing to negotiate with. All you had was this grace that brought the truth to your forefront of your mind. And faith, which was also a proportionate measure to respond, you responded by faith saying, I, I believe in you, Jesus. I put my trust in you. And that's what you brought, and that's where you stay. See, 30 years later, 50 years later, 20 years later, 6 months later, you still are called to live by faith. So your faith today is the same faith that brought you into a relationship with Him. It's one step. That particular sin, that particular anger, that particular issue in your life that you, you struggle with, go back to dealing with it the same way you dealt with when you come to Christ. It was a step of faith, and it's still a step of faith. God, I don't know how to deal with this person, this scenario, this situation, by faith. By faith we continue in this journey. Let's jump now over to First John chapter one, beginning in verse five. First John chapter one. Now think about how we've talked about responding and not conforming, to being transformed by the renewing of our mind, to realize the grace that's brought before us, learning to be honest with the one who saved us and walking by the gift of faith. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John speaks so beautifully, so definitively that it's confusing, right? I mean, there's so much there that you got to leave it in the context. You can't pluck it out and put it over here and put another one over here because then you go, that means that and that means that and wait, they're contract. Ah, Keep it in the context, which is why we're going to walk through this. It says in verse five, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You and I have an old nature, agreed? What we call the old nature is how you were and who you were before you were born again. A nature that was stimulated by the senses and driven by the natural opportunities and various things. You've seen things, you've heard things, you've things, you've touched things, you long longed for things that were of this world. But when you give your life to Christ, you said, in a sense, to this old nature, you're second. God is first. You put him in control. So the old nature no longer has dominion over you. You are a new creation in Christ, although the old nature, nature is there. The old nature has been defeated, but not deleted. Don't you wish sometimes it would be deleted? You just didn't have these various things that are contrary to the word? Actually, God will delete that in a new heaven and a new earth with a new heavenly body. That's when it happens. You, I, we still lean towards the shadows, the shady areas, what the Bible calls darkness, the things of this world. So even though you're born again, and you got a sense of balance, and you're learning to walk, you tend to kind of go to the old nature. God has no old nature. He's light, and in him is no darkness at all. see, see the importance of that? that? There's a clear distinction in, in regards to how we're to live in Christ, because he doesn't tilt this way. He's, he, he just teaches us to walk with him. In him, there is no darkness at all. No one can blame God. No one can say, gosh, if God wouldn't have put me in this situation, if I wouldn't have been born in this generation, if I wouldn't have been raised by those parents, if God wouldn't have done that to me, I probably wouldn't be this way. Get over yourself. It's not true. You, it's just your old nature. And, and don't be too hyper-religious or l- legalistic. The Bible tells you and me That the natural man and the spirit collide all the time. The natural man and the spirit are at enmity against each other. here's a real simple picture. The old nature, used to call the shots. For me, I was in my 20s before I became a Christian. And I functionally said, you're fired. I don't like what you produce. I don't like what you've done. I'm still dealing with the heartache and the scars. You're fired. God's in control. The old nature goes, okay, sorry, I was such a bummer. No. The old nature will rear his ugly head constantly. This world that is, it stimulates your senses and reminds you of your past will, will still be at you. And understand that will be a battle. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have victory in Christ. And that's what we're learning, that's what we're being taught, and how to live. He is light, and there's in him is no darkness of all at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's sad to report, and I know you've seen it, this happens all too often. People will say something to this effect. God knows me. He, he, he's okay with the things I do. You know, he, he, he knows I'm working on it. He's okay with this. We're still tight, even though I go to the shadows. Nope. You know, ain't tight with God. I don't care how much you comfort your conscience and say all the things. Here's what I hear frequently. I'm not picking on any one person. This is something that's been repeated to me for 30 years. And I know other people that have been Christians longer than me and served valiantly could validate this in their own conversations. You'll meet someone they haven't seen for a while. And they haven't, you know, sometimes people have maybe used to attend here or whatever. And this is one of the first things they say to me I'm still saved. I'm like, yeah, me too. I mean, <laughs> why would you start a engagement like I'm still saved? Because there's this, they wanting to let you, hey, I'm still bright and tight with God, even though I'm complete, well, not complete, but 98% in rebellion to Him, and I'm walking in the darkness, and I defy His word, and I deny His word. But hey, Him and I got it all worked out. No, you don't. You do not. Don't lie to yourself. It's destructive, it's damaging, and it's depressing. Don't do it. Just be honest. It's like, man, it's saying here, you know, you're lying to yourself and probably to others. The key to this verse is where we see in verse six, practice the truth. The King James actually doesn't say practice the truth and one who does not the truth. It just says you're not living truth. I mean, when you're not living truth, you're, you're buying a lie and it's taking you down, but you don't want to admit you're down because that's a downer. So you tell yourself something that says to kind of boost your emotion, but it's not true. So you boost them up and then they f- go flat like a balloon that's leaking. And you have to air it up again and next thing you know, you're just, it's like, practice the truth. See, many are weak in their spiritual life because of this that we're looking at. They have social strength. They can persuade other Christians that they're doing fine. But the fact is, in the privacy of their own home and their intimacy before God, they're weak in their walk with God because they've compromised and they said it's okay when it's not okay. Their darkness is actually the darkness of relational dishonesty. If you've been dishonest with a person, when the truth comes out, it's awkward to say the least, agreed? When I'm dishonest with God and say, well, that's okay, you know me. I'm telling him, just listen, listen. I'm going to do it this way, and you're obligated to bless me because you're good. He's not going for that. It's not going to happen. I want to be honest. God, if I'm saying, we're working on it, you know, some people say that we're working on it. No, you're not. You're not negotiating at the table of grace in some debate-style format and persuading God that what you're doing is okay when he said it's not okay. You may be doing that, but he's not not playing the game. He's going to be to you and to me. He's like, listen, drop that. I love you too much. I will not ignore this, that dishonesty, that anger, that issue, whatever you're dealing with. The verse is not talking about stumbling and the struggle that comes from walking in truth. You understand that, right? This is talking about two different things the stumbling and the struggling that we have when we're learning to walk spiritually as a new creation in Christ, when we're learning to navigate life through hardships and and difficulties and trials, you know, those things we'll address in verses seven and nine. This is talking about those who are not willing to walk in truth. They say have fellowship with God, yet live contrary to his instruction. Just one more glance at it. That'll summarize it. If we say we have fellowship with him, and we walk in disobedience, or we walk in darkness, we lie, and we are not living in the truth. We do not practice the truth. Now, notice how it goes on to say, but, which carries you, of course, instead of ignoring truth, we walk in light. It says that we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. Instead of ignoring, that's what you could do, you know, but I like to turn it into an acronym. Better understand this, or best understand this. Instead of ignoring the truth, what if we actually chose to walk in the light? What if we chose to, to have fellowship with him and and not walk in darkness? We walk in the light as he is in the light. The result, notice, one, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another. There's unity among the brethren when God is the focal point of the brethren. There's friction frequently. That's not a problem. There's division when God is not the head, when the denomination or the movement or the whatever is the, the focal point. But when he is the head, we have fellowship with one another. Can we agree? We are We have one common thing right here in this room. Mm, color blue could be part of it, Mm, decent shoes, that could be some of it. No, no, we have one thing, Jesus Christ. That's the common thing. We have variation, we have difference, we have personalities, all these things. But we're united in Christ, and when he is the light, when we walk in the light, we're knit together in a way that you can't always see in in a logical sense but you, you know it, you've experienced it. You meet someone for the first time, you talk for 20 minutes, and there's a weird bonding and knitting together of hearts. It's like you've known each other for years and you're, there's just something that powerful of the Spirit that takes place when you're, when you're walking in fellowship, when you're walking in the light. Walking in the light actually unites you to one another. How does it do that? I believe it happens this way because the Bible supports this, this thought theory and presents it. It actually unites you with your commonality and your differences. So when you come to church, you probably met someone or eventually talked to someone you just didn't really agree with. You weren't really eye to eye with, but you learned a little something from them. You noticed, okay, well, they're kind of wacko, but, and that's the pastor, you know, kind of a little out there, but, you know, they love the Lord, Jesus said something very powerful. His disciples said, You know what? These guys over there, they're not doing it the way we do it. Should we call them fire? Jesus' like, You don't know what manner of person you are. At one point, he said, If they're not against us, they're for us. Now, think about that. Are they against the gospel? Well, I don't know that they're against God. But they're Pentecostal. I don't know if they're against God, but they're legalistic. No, 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 no. You don't get to throw the butt. You got to say this. Well, they do it different than us, but they're not against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't, they're not contrary to the deity of Jesus Christ. They don't, they're not off on the essentials. Are they weird? Yeah. Are they different than you? Well, of course. Everybody is. You're weird. You know what I mean? There's this unity in variety. As you interact, you learn to walk in the light. You encourage, you correct, and you support one another. And I've said this, like I say, I, said, I mentioned a last service. It's not warmly embraced, but I haven't been, you know, had too much of an argument about it. When you come to church, you should meet someone that bugs you. Now, for those of you that are here, don't think that your ministry to be a bug to someone else. You're not the annoying ministry. But think about it. There will be somebody that's different than you. And you've got to be able to walk in kindness and compassion. You don't know their maturity, how long they've been with the Lord. Their gray hair or their young age doesn't tell you anything. They may be walking new in the Lord. They may have a lot different life experience. There's different things that God's doing in their life than your life. And so there should be a little bit of tension sometimes because you know when, you, when you're willing to put yourself aside and actually learn from somebody you wouldn't necessarily hang out with, man, it honors God and it touches you. I've learned so much from stupid people. Seriously. I mean, that's the way my brain sometimes thinks. Like, oh my gosh, why, why? I'm just sitting there and this person's like, blah, 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 about their sport or hobby. And, and that, as I'm willing to get over myself As the analogy I used earlier at the family reunion. I've been so blessed by people that are so different. So different. And you go, wow, I never, I, I talked to a person one time and when they started sharing their childhood, I almost started crying. Not just because of their condition and their experience, because the condition of my heart. Oh my God, I, 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 I never knew that about them. Well, why do I have to know that about them to have kindness towards them? You don't. But being willing to learn, and it's like, oh man. And so it brought, you know, there's this, when we walk in the light, there's fellowship with one another. But also remember, with darkness, and we're a family, right? Brothers and sisters, the Bible speaks of. Sin separates siblings. Agreed? That's in a physical sense too. But sin separates siblings. So you're walking with somebody and you're tight, and those, some of these dynamics I've shared have taken place. But then somebody, you know, they just, they really don't want to walk with the Lord. They don't really want to talk about the Lord. They really, they just want to be known socially, but not grow spiritually. And you start not really relating to them. You're not judging them. You're just not connecting with them because when you're not walking in the light and leaning to the shadows, then as you're trying to walk this way, you just don't want to go with them. Most of us have had the experience where we're invited to something we used to do and we don't go because there's a conviction. No, no thanks. We don't lecture people. We don't hit them with a Bible verse. We just don't go. But they notice you don't go. And the next time you're together... Their profanity bugs you more than it used to, and it bugs them. And they notice that you don't carry on with the same conversation. And then there's this separation, and I'm talking about even among Christians, to where it separates. But when we're walking in the light, as He is in the light, we experience humility. We have a chance to express forgiveness. We realize hope. We learn to trust. We have a Christ likeness, and that's what knits us together his cleansing work takes place in our hearts and through our lives lives intertwined and living in the light and i think it's one of the most beautiful experiences that we have in this life relationally in regards to fellowship is when we just get to meet people and learn from one another and continue the journey together moving on we got i got to pick up the pace a little bit we said that, or i guess i got to touch one other thing and i don't want to leave it It says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. In that fellowship your strengths will be made known as will your weakness. And you'll have opportunity to commit man I just read that person wrong. I did that wrong. And you you can in humility God will use the engagement with people to purify your heart and draw you closer to him. Nothing in this life will cause you to pray more than people agreed whether it's contrary like enemies or whether it's someone really close to you it draws you to a humble and close relationship with God and you see and experience that cleansing work at that time now in verse 8 if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us I've touched on it briefly but the thought that and I've actually have heard this it's A few years into my Christian journey, I didn't hear it all. But then now as I've been teaching more and more of a point of maybe somewhat of a directive role and a teaching role, I've heard it more. I'm good. I don't need people. I don't need fellowship. I don't really sin until I'm around people. Really. You know, remember this letter was written at a time of contemporary teaching was Gnosticism. Gnosticism, Gnostic, it's Gnosis, it's where it speaks of a higher knowledge, an enlightenment. Gnostics believed that the body was evil, but the enlightened person was good. That's why I believe partly why we have such a clarification in the first few verses that Jesus was a man, a body. But there's people today that still kind of have that Gnostic tilt. They act the same, they say things like, I don't sin. I've even heard this said before, the devil made me do it. Oh, oh, why were you hanging out with him? The devil didn't make you do it, you did it. I've heard this one, people make me angry. Have you ever felt people make you angry? Sit down and hold on. You're an angry person. People just give opportunity to prove it. You're already angry. It resides with. I heard this said one time by Kim's grandma, that uh, she lost her temper and threw a frying pan at Harvey. And my thought was like, I don't know. Sounds like you found it. You didn't lose anything. It was already there. Just angry people. And I, I I'm touching on a lot of people right now. Angry people need to be honest. There's anger inside of us, and other people just give the opportunity to prove that it's there. So now we got to deal with me and not them. I would rather blame them because if they wouldn't have tripped my trigger, I wouldn't have said what I said. Well, that's so backwards. The truth is, if I say I don't sin, the truth is not in me. If I say, no, that's not me, it's them. Every relationship where they blame the spouse, they blame the child, they blame, blame the parents, it's none of those people it's you. You are the problem. Oh, that's harsh. That's too bold. That's too specific. It's you. You can't fix them. They got their own baggage and garbage to deal with. They're not your problem. You. You were the one that needs to go before the Lord. and go. God, God I, I know that they did some things, but here between you and I, I know how my emotions were. I know how that situation was. I know how I baited them. I know how I pushed the buttons. I know what I did. God, please forgive me. That is a deep deep, trusting honesty with the living God. And if we won't do it, we're lying to ourselves and we're lying, and actually making God a liar because we say, we're well, okay, I'm okay with God, I go to church every time I can. So what? So what? Going to church has got nothing to do with a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. Hopefully it's an encouragement and it's, it's a, like a supplement. But man, it's so important, we're just honest. Verse nine, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, okay. What if we don't confess? What if we miss a sin or two? Are we then not forgiven because I didn't remember those ones? A logic that you know, many people have worked through or worked, look, looked at. This is not in regards to salvation, it involves sanctification. It's speaking to believers, speaking to someone who has a relationship with God, who can walk in the light. And when we are walking in the light, he's going to reveal things about us and in us and and the truth. He's going to be doing this purifying work. And we're in the process of being sanctified. There's not one person who is perfectly sanctified. I know there's teaching that says you can arrive at perfect sanctification. It won't happen in this body. It won't. And anyone, I had one person, we had this discussion, and I said, could I spend a day with you? Because I can assure you, you will sin by the time the day is over. I'm confident. Now, it's not my calling in life to stumble another brother, but let's face it. Someone who says, no, I don't sin anymore. I've reached this level. I, you know, you, you've missed it relationally. Because what happens... When we realize God reveals things in our own heart and we relationally, this is the core of this first chapter in the book, letter, it's relational. And so when I have issues that I didn't know about, I I was several years into my Christian journey and God revealed to me some things that were sin, that I didn't really, honestly, I really didn't know that they were sin because of the way I dealt with them and justified them. But when he revealed it relationally, because I'm born again, I have a choice, no, I don't think you're. I don't. I don't think you understand God, or like, oh God, I I I'm so embarrassed. I never called that sin. I, I was okay with that, and now I want to throw up. It's so hideous, God. I I agree with you, and He doesn't say, okay, you know, I knew it all along. It says that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He takes that, so you know, you got to realize that. He's faithful. What's new to you is well known to him. I've been a Christian for over 30 years. And every week there's something that he reveals that I have the opportunity to agree with him and confess it because of the relationship and the growing intimacy I have or deny it. And I've found it just better to agree with him. It's, It's new to me. I didn't see how that would affect people that way or that would do that. God forgive me. It's new to me, but it's known to him. And because it's known to him, we can say he's faithful and just. You don't surprise God with your sin. He doesn't go, are you kidding me? I taught you that 31 years ago, and now you're doing it again? i got to find me a new place to collect myself. No, he knew it. He knew the sin I committed before I was born again, and he knows the sin I'll deal with tomorrow. And he's faithful and just. If I will agree with him that he's right, then he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If I disagree with him, I'm calling him a liar and I'm not walking in the truth. It didn't cost me salvation. It's affecting my cleansing, my sanctification, being set apart for him for his purposes. You want to continue how you started. We touched on this already. By faith. If God is showing you something, don't call it small. If he's showing you something, maybe it's a disposition, maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's just some seemingly small thing. Big things start with small things. And that small thing, whatever it may be, maybe it's something that's hard to even see the importance to. Just admit, God, I don't see why that's so important, but I'm really convicted that how I handled that, how I said that, how I did that is, is out of line with you. So I just admit it, God, forgive me. Show me how to live by faith. Show me how to deal with that. Show me how to handle that. You know, every person in this room has a tilt, a tendency. The Bible speaks of a besetting sin, and that's the one you'd be sitting with too much. That's the one that often trips you up. We all have them. Some great, some small. It's better to agree with God about that than to put on a fictitious facade, a pretension of religion. It's better to just say, God, just between you and me, and I'm glad it's just the two of us. I agree with you. I don't know how to let go of that. By faith, teach me, because I know that you are faithful and you're just. He's just. He can pay your He can deal with your sin because he paid your debt. And so he's faithful and just, and he can cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so God, I just trust you by faith. And if it comes up the next day, you're still thinking about, like, Lord, I'm not gonna deviate from this. I'm gonna put my faith in you. That's what got you saved. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's what carries you on is faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Closing out the chapter, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Maybe you should or could consider or even apply it in this manner. If God says it's not okay, then it's not okay. You may not say, oh, I'm not a sinner, I don't sin. That's all inclusive, but would you be willing to back away and say individually? Um, God, if you, if you say it's not okay that I embrace, it's so not okay. I don't understand entirely, but I'm still gonna agree with you. If we say that it's not sin, we're calling him a liar, and we've set aside his word. You know, people memorize the Bible all the time and go through systematic studies and, and devotional you know, guidelines and still set aside his word even though it's resident in their head, it's not taking place in their heart. There's no power. There's no transforming work. And I would suggest this is a portion of it. Just admit, God, I don't, I don't, I'm not... If this If you call it sin, if it's something that's you brought up between you and me i just I just embrace it, okay, God, I don't get it, but I agree with you, and I admit you're right, I do do that, I tilt to that. Could you show me more so that I would understand how to not walk in it? You know sometimes some of us, because of the pattern, we expect to sin, right? Well, we all make mistakes. Well, we, we do, but the question is, how do we deal with it? Do we do it intentionally because we know we can get away with it? Or we do it do in a sense of like, oh, I sh- uh, oh man, why did I do that? And then we find ourselves saying, well, I agree with you. Show me now how not to continue in that. Let's close out. I haven't used that word yet, have I? So I've got like three of those. I only get three on Sunday. I haven't used them yet, so just kidding. Hey, worship team's going to come back up. Which you know that's legitimate closing. When I invite them up, you know that I'm probably done within a half hour. So, just kidding. If you would turn with me to Psalm 139, (coughs) excuse me, Psalm 139 is a petition, it's a request, it's a very humble, transparent, um, just bowing before God. And I believe that's a great way for us to end our time because some of these things I've said, they come off as very harsh. I, 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 I don't know what to say. Um, but you know the truth in them. You understand. The Lord's convicted you of certain things, maybe not even one of my quote outline points. But he's, he's doing a work in your heart because he loves you. He, he, long, he actually offers the best for you. His correction is for your better. So will you stand with me, and we're going to pray through Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And then we'll close our time worshiping by way of music. God, we just, I just thank you for your word. I'm thankful that you have made it come alive to me twice today, and even conviction as I speak in a public sense, but there's a stirring in it within If you would teach me, oh God, thank you. And, and I believe you teach all of us. That as we're hungry and willing to just go by faith and allow you, invite you, be eager for you to bring correction and clarification. Give us the integrity, the honesty, the intimacy, God, that we would request a search. That you, God, in your love and kindness and justice and compassion would search us and know our hearts. We don't know them, God, but you do. And you'll reveal to us what we need to know in the moment we need to know it. And God, as you do that, and you test us and try us, it's for our benefit. You would know our anxieties, those things that are concerning to us, but then they become consuming. Oh, Lord, reveal those things that we could hand them off. Give us the faith, that added measure where needed to trust you in these things, God. And Lord, will you look and reveal? We know you know, but would you peer into our hearts? Is there anything we're holding on to? If there's any wicked way within us that's taken root and taken us off course, God, by faith, because you're faithful, because you're just, because you paid the price for our sin, we would ask you, God, that you would lead us individually and collectively as your children lead us in the way everlasting. Oh, it's in your beautiful name we pray, Jesus, in your name we sing to you. Amen.